Uh, Well, friends, as we uh, move into this time of hearing the word of God preached, uh, as I was preparing for this message, I couldn't help but think of one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 91. And I'd love to just put these words in front of us from Psalm 91, verse 1, before we dive more fully into the book of Acts and continue our series there. Psalm 91, verse 1, tells us the following truth. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Again, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. This is a psalm that was written to and about God's covenant people, those whom God protects day in and day out. And here, we are about to read in Acts 3 of a man who for 40 years knew the truth of this psalm firsthand. He had no other argument, no other plea, except for the mercy and loving kindness of God all over his life. And yet here in Acts 3, as I invite you to turn with me to our scripture this morning, from Acts 3, specifically verses 1 through 10, we're about to see this man experience the truth that he dwells within the shadow of the Almighty, as if knowing it for the first time. This morning, we were going to be continuing our series in the book of Acts, and like an old drive-in movie theater, as some of you might have experienced, and I I definitely envy you a little bit if you have experienced that, but like an old drive-in movie theater, I would invite us to pull up and park our figurative car and stay a little while as we see the moving picture before our eyes of Acts 3, 1 through 10, unfold and elapse. If you grew up in the church, especially as a little child in Sunday school, like myself as well, you probably are familiar with this reading from Acts 3, which we are about to look at. This man who was healed, this man who was lame and yet was healed by what God did for him. And you might recall that song that a lot of us sang in Sunday school, the song about walking and leaping and praising God, walking and leaping and praising God. And maybe I'm the only one who actually sang that song growing up, uh, two of us at least. But uh, this passage is so familiar to a lot of us who heard that growing up. And yet, likewise, I would love to invite each one of us to hear the story as if we were reading it for the very first time. This man who was lame from birth and yet was healed by God's mighty hand. For here in Acts 3, 1 through 10, we are about to see the healing creatively magnificent and miraculous power of God in Christ's name demonstrated before and truly for on behalf of a man who was otherwise incapable and helpless in this life. Signs and wonders and mighty acts. These three things are things that we're about to see throughout the rest of the book of Acts. We're about to see all kinds of these things as the apostles who were filled with the Spirit by this point in our reading were to go about and proclaim with boldness and accuracy the things concerning Christ. And signs and wonders and mighty acts would attend this first proclamation of the gospel to the world. So this is what we're about to read of, friends. Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. And it's here that the word of God says this. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixes attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, 
walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Church, with this in mind, let's come before our God in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that this word is the word that you have given to us to read of Christ, your son, to hear of the gospel afresh, to be blessed and encouraged by it. And so we ask God that you would use this time to speak with power and with might by your Holy Spirit through these words that you've given to us, these words that are unchanging and forever true, inspired by you, not a mere human's words, but rather your words. May we receive them as such and know that you use all of this scripture by your spirit to draw our affections to Christ through the reading of your word and through the preaching of your word in this time. And so, Lord, would you use this vessel of mercy in your own hands to proclaim by your own power, O God, your magnificence and the miraculous wonders of which we just read about. May your word go forth and bear fruit. And we ask this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, church, before we fully dive into our passage this morning and, and look more closely at it for the time that we have together, I want to remind us of Christ's own words as a precursor to the events that we just saw here in Acts 3, that we just read about. Christ's words that were there in Acts 1, verse 8. And so we're going to do a little hopping around scripture here for a moment, so please bear with me, but I'd love for you to turn over to Acts 1, uh, verse 8, and consider these words of our risen Lord. Acts 1, verse 8. Christ commissioned his apostles, namely Peter and John, the guys we just read about, along with the other nine who were there remaining, and he said this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, Christ himself told Peter, John, and the others whom he had chosen and prayed for and sanctified in the word of truth that they were those upon whom he was about to pour out his spirit over them. And he did that very thing over them after he ascended on high to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. At the beginning of Acts 2, which we unfortunately had to skip over last Sunday, Christ poured out his spirit over these apostles, along with the other 120 or so remaining disciples that were there gathered in the upper room. And so we saw at this time of Pentecost, about 50 days after the ascension and the Passover had passed at that point, and Christ's death and burial and resurrection, of course, the coming of the Spirit. But catch this, the filling of them as well with that Spirit. The one by whom they would do these marvelous acts. Never drawing attention to them, the apostles, Peter, John, and the others, but rather them as vessels, as conduits, God would then use them to bring about spiritual healing and even accompanying signs of physical healing to prove the trustworthiness of this gospel message that was going forth. We saw earlier in Acts 2 last week, uh, at the beginning of Acts 2, that the disciples, of course, experienced this, this marvelous, miraculous event of the Spirit coming upon them and then in that moment, they began to speak in tongues, proclaiming the excellencies of God's glorious grace. Nothing short of what we just read about in Ephesians 1 a moment ago. God's glorious grace. And these people, though they were speaking in foreign languages, they were, of course, understood, as we know from Scripture. And they bore witness to Christ, his death and his resurrection, 
but all of, and here's a Latin phrase for you, all of the Magnalia Dei, which means the magnificent works of God, the host of all of God's mighty works was about to be proclaimed to the people. Of course, we know this unique and peculiar act in Acts 2 was nothing short of a miracle. It's not something that we should seek or, of course, try to replicate in today's day and age. Uh, We're not Pentecostals, to say the least, even though we love our Pentecostal and charismatic brothers and sisters in Christ. But those things are not for us. Rather, this was a peculiar event there in Acts 2. But during that time, if you continue to think through the events of Acts chapter 2, 3,000 souls were brought to salvation, saving faith in Christ's name. And these believers, these early believers, along with their entire households, were baptized and brought into the covenant community, or the church, if you will, the church of Christ. The baptism as a sign of admission into this community. But daily, going forth, between this time of Acts 2 and Acts 3, then, we read of and we hear of the fact that daily men and women were continuing to be saved, more and more being added to their number, which brings us up to the last section that we read last week, Acts 2, 42 through 47, in which we saw how the early disciples, this growing number of the church, were gathered together and they were being equipped by those four things we mentioned last week. The apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, the fellowship, and the prayers. Well, what happened on a day-by-day basis, you might be wondering. How did that look as it continued to go forth? Well, here in Acts 3, 1 through 10, it picks up the narrative by recognizing how the apostles, namely Peter and John, continued devoting themselves to the fellowship and prayers especially. And it says here in verse 1, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Well, what does that mean exactly? What does it mean by the hour of prayer? Uh, well, we'll come back to that here in a moment. But in the meantime, I want us to recognize the fact that they themselves were, again, devoted to these things. Prayer, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the teaching of the word of God. They were devoted to these things. And they couldn't help but then stand in awe of God's magnificent works. But something even more mysterious and magnificent was about to happen. Something here at the temple that could in no other way be explained. For as the gospel would go forth, signs and wonders and mighty acts of God through the apostles were about to take place. So, what kinds of things would God do through these apostles? What kinds of things would he do? Well, in short, here in Acts 3, we're about to see the fulfillment of all kinds of predictive prophecies regarding this time when Christ would pour out his spirit upon believers. This time that was long awaited, and yet here being fulfilled before their eyes. And so, when you think about this passage As I was looking over this, I couldn't help but see a few prophecies in particular being immediately fulfilled here in Acts 3 and 1 through following. Namely, one passage, which again, I'd also like to invite you to comb through your Bible and find, if you will, in Isaiah 35, a prophecy about this same time in Scripture. Isaiah 35, specifically verses 3 through 6. And this prophecy foretold what was about to happen here in Acts 3, let alone the rest of the book of Acts. Isaiah 35, 3 through 6, says the following, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Say, uh, Behold, your God will come uh, with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. And catch this, 
Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. What's fascinating, though, friends, is that it was not only Isaiah 35, but a host of other prophecies that were being fulfilled right here, several hundred years after they were written, right here in the book of Acts. One thing that is curious is that we know that Luke, who was the author, the human writer, if you will, of this scripture recorded by God himself through the hand of Luke, also wrote previously in his gospel account of Luke in Luke chapter 4 of another prophecy that was fulfilled in this time. And here again in Acts 3, fulfilled yet again. See, Christ himself in Luke chapter 4 preached, as you might be aware, in the synagogue in his own hometown of Nazareth, a place where he had grown up, a place that uh, I've even actually had the pleasure of going to visit myself. I've seen the wine press at his own hometown, and I've seen a synagogue that was built up in the honor of where this actual synagogue was. I've been inside, and I've been to that town, and it was incredible. And yet here in Luke 4, Christ quotes from Isaiah 61, another prophecy regarding this time frame in redemptive history, the following words from Isaiah chapter 61. Christ says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Friends, just as Jesus proclaimed with all marvel commanding authority these words, these words were also then fulfilled in him. And yet also here in this passage, as the work of Christ continued forward in the life of the church. So knowing all this context now, I'd love to have us actually dive into Acts 3, 1 through 10, properly so. And here, we're going to see in the first five verses the sense of the magnificence of God before our eyes. And later on in verses 6 through 10, the last half of this passage, the miraculous works of God. So in essence, the uh, magnificent works of God in the first five verses and the miraculous works of God in the last five. Now again, we pick up in verse 1 of Acts 3 that Peter and John were making their way to pray there at the temple. Uh, what's curious, though, is that, I don't know about you, but when I see this, you know, Peter and John making their way to the temple to pray, it can be a little confusing at first to us. You know, do they have to keep going to the temple to pray? I thought they could pray, you know, wherever at this point. Uh, well, if you think so, you are absolutely right. The thing is, they weren't going to the temple in order to pray. Rather, they were going to the temple in order to continue to meet publicly for worship. They were willfully going not to make sacrifices any longer for Christ himself, the true and greater sacrifice, had already been made once for all time for sin. Rather, they attended the temple to pray with the other believers, Peter and John and whomever else might have been going with them on a regular basis. But what's interesting about this idea of them praying at the temple and gathering for public prayer is that they were, in essence, setting a precedent for us and for those even the last 2,000 years before us. See, the early church, we know from certain manuscripts, uh, would often pray morning, day, and night at the temple and the local synagogues, or churches, if you will, where the people, the believers, would gather for worship. They would pray throughout the day, and they would find specific times to even gather together publicly to pray. We know from the Mishnah, for instance, which is an ancient Jewish document, that they would gather for the reading of two things in particular, uh, both the Shema and the Decalogue. Uh, the Shema, which states from the book of the law, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And they would immediately follow that with the Ten Commandments and be reminded of the sinfulness of their own sin and their need for forgiveness. And so the people, as they would gather at the synagogue and temple, would pray publicly reading scripture, but then also praying responsively in repentance and faith, asking the Lord to forgive them of their sins. 
We know, continuing on in the history of the church, that the early church, according to the Didache, which is an ancient Christian document, uh, probably referring to things that happened in the first and second century AD, um, that the early Christians would even gather continually, day in and day out. And they would gather morning and evening, also, like the Jews would do, for the public reading of scripture and responsive prayers. They gathered in particular, uh, not just reading the, the Shema and the Ten Commandments, but they would read, of all things, the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer, which we, of course, ourselves to this very day, continue to recite and take and own it in our own hearts as a church every single Sunday. This is where that tradition began, reading and praying the Lord's Prayer together every Sunday. But even then, after that, fast-forwarding another 1,500 years, again, looking at church history here, public prayer, during the time of the Reformation, our Reformed uh, fathers and mothers, if you will, those who led the way 500 years ago and broke off of the Catholic Church seeking to reform it and bringing it back to a right understanding of Scripture and proper worship, one of the things that they incorporated while they were trying to incorporate right biblical worship was morning and evening prayer and morning and evening worship. For instance, on Sundays, uh, the Reformed Church, Presbyterians and others alike, within our own tradition, would gather on Sundays, the Lord's Day, for worship, both morning and evening. Um, they must have gotten bonus points or something, because I, for one, am not really a fan of both morning and evening services. Uh, but that's also why, though, we gather to this day as those in that same tradition in the morning on Sundays and also usually spend time together in the evenings, like with our own community group, for instance. That's why we continue that same tradition in that way. But what's also interesting is that in the Reformed tradition, they emphasize the importance of family prayer, gathering together to pray husbands and wives together and mothers and fathers with their children. And every morning and evening, they set forth the example to pray together. And so family worship, corporate worship, was already in place even here in Acts 3, verse 1. The public gathering for prayer. So let's come back to the text here uh, for the remainder of our time in this sermon. See, Acts 3, verse 1, again, picks up with this notion in which we see Peter and John essentially leading by example the church collectively in public prayer. And yet while they were on their way, as we continue in this passage, they saw a man in need. They were heading to the temple at 3 p.m., that hour of prayer in the afternoon, and yet they saw this man who was there en route to the temple, already at the temple grounds, and they saw him begging, asking for alms. I don't know about you, but that word alms is not something we often hear. And so we often think of a couple pictures, someone on the street asking or begging for food. You know, will work for food. And what a sad place to be. But in a lighter manner, oftentimes I picture, when I hear the word alm, I think of old Disney movies in which the person would be like, you know, alms, alms for the poor. You know, Robin Hood and movies like that. And I'm probably dating myself by mentioning Robin Hood. But anyways, uh, this person was asking for alms, alms for the poor. See, this man is interestingly so a man who is unnamed. We don't really know much about him in particular. Rather, we know a lot from what Scripture says about his situation. It says that he was 40 years old. It says that he was someone who was born with a defect, born from his own mother's womb, literally in the Greek, from the womb of his mother with this effect this effect that sin, living in a sinful world, brought about. Nothing of his own doing, but rather the fact that we all live in sin and are affected by it in various ways. And yet what's interesting is that we also see not just this person and his circumstance and even his defect, his handicap, but we also see in this moment his faith. His faith. I don't know about you, but when I would read over this passage in years gone by, I never quite honestly noticed the man's faith 
until this past week. And as I began chewing over this text and really considering it and, and looking carefully at it, I couldn't help but see the faith of this man more and more clearly as I dug into what was actually going on. So you might be wondering, well, where is this sign of his faith before the miracle actually happens? Where is this man's faith? How do we know that he was a believer in the one true God? Well, friends, I think the location itself is the dead giveaway. Where was this man? The text says that he was at essentially the temple mount, but not just the temple grounds on the outside looking in, he actually had been carried as far as one with his own condition could be carried, right up there to what is called here in the context, the beautiful gate. The beautiful gate. Now, I mentioned that I've been to Israel before, and I'd love to show you guys more pictures and things like that in time. And I thought about even having something on the slide, but I'm not that tech savvy, so I didn't go for it. But picture, if you will, walking up to the Temple Mount. And if you can imagine in your mind's eye, there is, having been there before, just tons of, of area to cover, tons of ground to actually traverse before you finally get to the steps of the temple. This man who was crippled, who couldn't walk on his own accord, had asked, essentially, implicitly here from the text, his friends and family, his loved ones, even kind random strangers, to carry him on a daily basis to be there at the temple, as close as he could get to the actual worship of God there inside the temple. And so he sat and parked himself at the beautiful gate, the portal between the temple grounds and the temple itself where the sacrifices and prayers and thanksgiving were, were being made. He got as close as he could. And yet daily, he was reminded of the truth that there is sin that separates a holy God from unholy sinners. And even in regard to the effects of sin, which we all face in various ways, also a separation between what is clean and unclean. Now, of course, we never want to confuse the two, and I'd love to preach on that topic much later if we ever cover the Old Testament in terms of the books of the law, the idea of cleanness and uncleanness versus holiness and unholiness. They are distinct, though related. But this man was consumed, I imagine, by the thought of his own unholiness, his own sin, as he approached the holy dwelling place of God under the Old Covenant. But he also was reminded of his own uncleanness daily and his need for a cleanser, a purifier, namely God himself. And so in essence, by faith, this man attended the worship of God daily to the best of his ability, even in spite of his handicap, wholly lenient upon the mercy of God's people, truly God himself through them, to carry his entire body weight out of love and compassion and friendship toward him. This man couldn't carry his own weight, let alone survive in life, unless there was the kindness of strangers and the kindness of God's people, and please catch that, to tend to his brokenness. And so compelled by God's heart of kindness, God's people, these men and women of faith, brought him to the temple. And he experienced something there. There it says that he was asking for alms daily. But literally what's interesting, that word alms, again, that sounds a little foreign to us now, that word alms in the Greek literally has the idea of an act of charity or an act of kindness. This guy was not only asking for things to get by in life, you know, food for the day, a loaf of bread to sustain his own well-being. He was asking, in essence, for more than just money and what money could buy. He was asking for love. He was asking for charity. So how did God tend to him? This man who knew the scriptures, who, according to uh, Psalm 84, as Psalm 84 says, chose to rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God 
than be anywhere else. This man who was crippled and lame and yet was someone who realized that it was better to be in the presence of the Lord for one day than a thousand days elsewhere. How would God show this man mercy? Well, enter Peter and John. See, these men, Peter and John, were filled with the spirit and the loving kindness of God. Verse 3 says the following of them and of the situation. It says this, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them to receive alms, or again, as we know, acts of charity. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Now, the scriptures of Isaiah, you know, the passages that we were reading a moment ago, Isaiah 35 and 61 and Luke 4, were all about to be fulfilled right here and there in this moment. The healings and the signs and the wonders that all marked the coming of God's kingdom to earth were about to be seen here in a small yet powerful part. For just as Christ had come to destroy the works of the devil upon the cross, as we know from 1 John 3, verse 8, we see also the mighty acts of God foresignified here, pointing to nothing short of Christ and his mercy for his people. The mighty acts of God by his spirit through his apostles were at hand. The magnificent works of God. Well, that then brings us to our, the second half of this passage. What exactly then happened? How did God address and comfort this lowly man in verses 6 through 10 we find the answer to these things verses 6 through 8 in particular say the following but Peter said I have no silver and gold but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth rise up and walk Peter in essence took him up as it says by the right hand pulled him up and in that moment, his feet and his ankles were brought back to full strength and healing. His legs, which had never been able to walk or even uphold himself in his own body weight, finally were fully strengthened there in the moment. And this man began to leap and walk and praise God. And catch this. I love this part. This man could have gone anywhere in the moment. He could have up and left for all that he could have done. And yet, where does the text say that he went? It says, walking and leaping and praising God, he then went into the temple with them. All of his days, he had longed to go in there, and he finally had his shot. And so the first thing he did was start praising God, God's glorious grace, and entered into the temple for the first time. What an amazing sight. And what an amazing sight more so of God's miraculous power and the mercy of God upon needy sinners like you and I. See, this man had assumed that Peter and John would simply give him a partial means to survive yet another day, perhaps money or food or something of the sort that could at least pay for his medical expenses. And yet Luke, the writer of this, Luke who was also a physician and a doctor by trade, chose to emphasize just the incredible, miraculous event before his eyes. Things that even a doctor couldn't explain fully. <laughs> and so Luke said the following of this event. He, he describes three major important things here in this text. Namely, the healing of the man's body in particular. But also, Luke emphasizes the healing that was done being something that happened in Jesus' name. So in essence, the spiritual side, not just the physical. But Luke also addresses the faith that is expressed outwardly by this otherwise unnamed man. See, it says here that Peter took up the, right, the man by the right hand. Uh, and I have this picture of someone who's on the field and picking up a fallen athlete. You know, helping to carry somebody back up and pick them back up so that they can be at least given the dignity and honor of holding themselves together. But what could have been, in all reality, a horribly cruel joke to a crippled man by trying to pick up somebody who's crippled was not anything of the sort. Rather, it was an act 
done by Peter in faith and received in faith by the man who was being picked up. Again, we see that passage from Luke 4 and Isaiah 35, how the lame would leap like a deer and liberty would be brought to those who were otherwise captive here on full display. And Peter had faith in Christ and the words of Christ to do just that in this moment as someone who had been empowered by the Spirit, particularly so to do that. And so this man says, uh, or Peter rather actually says, as we see later on in Acts 3 verse 16, that this man was healed by nothing less, as verse 16 goes on to say, after they entered the temple, by nothing less than Jesus' name. By faith in Jesus' name, this man was made strong, whom the people saw and knew. The faith that is through Jesus had given this man perfect health, complete health, in the presence of all those who were around. Again, this is something that we see as a particular moment in redemptive history, not something that we should try to replicate ourselves, of course. But again, in this moment, we cannot help but see God's redeeming power, not only for us spiritually, but there, given through the signs and wonders that accompany the proclamation of the gospel. As Christ, through the apostles, actually healed physically a man born with a defect. Now Luke records in verse 7 of Acts 3 that the man's feet and ankles were made strong. And again, this is a doctor or a physician speaking here about what happened. What actually happened to his legs? Uh, in the original language, this anatomical description is beyond the usual word for feet that we might think of. If you've ever been to a, a podiatrist, you know, someone who works with feet, a foot doctor, you might recognize that foot for feet but that's not the word that he uses here for feet. Rather, the idea of feet and ankles that Luke brings up here has this idea of the entirety of the person's foot area and the ability to even walk in the first place. Luke then goes on to say that even his legs were made strong to actually support himself. His legs that had never worked properly a single day in his life were strengthened in that instant. And so, friends, the healing that took place was nothing short of a miracle. But it was also clear in the moment, and this is so much greater than even the physical healing, that in the moment, this was done in Jesus' name and by faith in his name. For the man himself, this unnamed crippled man, was religious and no doubt had a keen familiarity with the scriptures. Again, as I mentioned earlier, he was one who knew the scriptures, who desired to worship with God's people, who heard the psalms and the hymns of the people of Israel being sung loudly as the sound expanded outside and resonated outside of the temple walls. And yet we see here an act of charity by God himself for this man. And yet we also see here a response from this man, a response that is marked by faith as he then enters the temple so quickly and praises God, leaping and filled with excitement, a response of faith in the God of sovereign mercy and grace. Again, this man could have gone anywhere, but the first thing he wanted to do was worship God and to join God's people in worshiping It says this, he entered the temple with Peter and John, walking and leaping and praising God. Essentially, he went public with this news. He couldn't contain it. He held it in. And so verse 9 and 10 pick up the same fact, and it says, all the people then saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate and the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So the real question is then, what happened to him? Well, in essence, Christ Jesus had shown him mercy through Christ's instruction of his apostles. See, Christ himself is the one who compelled the apostles to extend their hand and pick up this man. This was Christ who was working through them. And that's what is so important to catch. It wasn't their own power. It was God's power. 
I'm reminded of what Christ told his apostles before his death and resurrection. He told them this, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose upon earth shall have been loosed in heaven. It's the sense that whatever they were about to do under Christ's command had already been predicated by what Christ himself had purposed to do for them and through them. And so they were fulfilling even the scripture right here. Christ had purposed, in essence, to loosen this man from his crippled estate, and so he worked through his apostles to loosen him from this captivity and proclaim liberty to him instead. And so this was nothing short of a miracle. A miracle that is, by its definition, a display of divine power. But I don't want to pretend like we all have a working knowledge of a definition of what the word miracle means. In fact, we often will watch fantastical movies that are riddled with all kinds of marvelous and wonderful things. Uh, I'm personally not into um, Star Wars. I'm sorry, Christian, but see him shaking his head over there. Or, you know, Marvel films and that kind of stuff. Although I do like X-Men, I admit that. But you'll see all kinds of fantastical images right in front of you. And yet, this is something that is so distinctly different than just a superpower or something of the sort or the force. <laughs> this is something that is a miracle, a working of divine intervention. So to give us a, a couple of definitions to, to think about, I like to put C.S. Lewis's own definition of the word miracle before you all. Lewis says this, that a miracle is an interference with nature by a supernatural power. I think it's a very uh, articulate way of saying that. Um, but I actually love how his own contemporary, J. Gerson Machen, the Princeton scholar, um, put it in his own words. Uh, Machen said, a miracle is an event in the external world that is wrought by the immediate power of God. In the case of a miracle, Machen continues, he puts forth his creative power just as truly as in the mighty act of creation which underlies the whole process of the world. See, in essence, miracles do not act contrary to nature, but rather in a supplementary way. God, in essence, when he works a miracle, as we're about to see over and over and over again in Acts, is working along with nature his providence that he already has established, his care for all things and his people. And yet he works with that same kind of creative power with which he made the universe in the first place. Hopefully that makes sense. And so God's miraculous works that we see throughout scripture, uh, the virgin birth of Christ, Christ's resurrection from the dead, our resurrection from the dead, which we anticipate as well as belonging to Christ, all of the signs and the wonders that we read about throughout the Old and New Testament alike are all part of God's creation power. Creation power that is special and separate from his everyday acts of providence and protection that we ourselves enjoy. For this man, friends, was crippled from birth. And yet Christ miraculously, beyond his physical healing, brought the temple to him, figuratively speaking. See, as Christ was proclaimed to this man, the fullness, the fulfillment of the scriptures, the name of Jesus given to him by Peter and John, Christ, who is the true temple, the true dwelling place of God with man, was proclaimed to this man. A man who could otherwise not enter the physical temple was brought the temple, the true temple. Christ. That really, in all honesty, is the greatest miracle that we read about here in this passage. That Christ came to this man. Christ himself is the object of our worship. The one by whom we ourselves, as we take this and own it for our own selves, this passage, Christ, the one with whom we have access to God the Father. Christ is the one in whom all of the sacrifices and the types and the shadows of the Old Testament point us toward. He is the dwelling place of God with man, not only for this man who is crippled, but for each one of us who places our faith in him. Christ is both our high priest, but also the atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
the one who proclaims spiritual liberty to our sin-captive souls by his work of redemption upon the cross for us. And it's by Christ's wounds and Christ's wounds alone that each one of us who has faith in Christ are healed. Healed spiritually from sin. And in time, and this is the beauty of it, for us even here in the now, both the noetic and physical effects of sin that we are plagued by. Christ will, in his own timing, work out that spiritual healing in our own souls. And it might not be today or five years from now, but he will come glory when we stand before that higher throne in the flesh. We will be healed of all of these effects of sin. Our bodies will no longer ache. We will be healed, completely restored our minds and bodies and our souls alike. But in the meantime, we can rest upon this truth that by his spirit, we as believers have minds that are sprinkled clean. And we can experience, even now, part of what we anticipate as we lean upon the grace of God to sustain us as we continue to turn from sin and turn to Christ. Now, in light of the implicit gospel message here then in Acts 3, 1 through 10, there are a few key points of application for us in this text. Uh, The first is that we too, like the man who waited at the temple gate day in and day out, are those who are right in crying out, along with the psalmist in Psalm 84, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. And later on in verse 10 of Psalm 84, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. So friends, as believers, we are those who wait rightly for the loving kindness and charity of our Lord, just as this man did knowing that he always hears us and gives us unbroken attention, just like Peter and John displayed to him in person. And so we wait upon the Lord with patience. But we also are those who have been set free from the power of canceled sin. We are those who were formerly mute and crippled, spiritually speaking, bruised and broken by the effects of sin. And we still wrestle with sin in the here and the now. And yet we read immediately after these events in Acts 3 that as Peter articulated exactly what Christ had done through them, that our sole response to the gospel of Christ's suffering for our sins and exaltation to the right hand of God is marked by this. Repentance, that our sins may be blotted out and that times of refreshing may come through the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for us Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And so friends, we, as another point of application, wait upon the Lord for times of spiritual refreshing as we continue to repent of our sin daily. As a final point of application, for those who have yet to put their faith in Christ Jesus as their only savior from sin, This passage proclaims to you, friends, that even though your sin and its effects keep you from worshiping God aright, from entering into his dwelling place, if you will, Christ is the true and better temple. The one who comes to weary and worn out sinners with healing in his wings. The one who came to this poor man can also come for you. Christ is both strong and kind. This Christ who was crucified for our sakes. And through the preaching of his word, the word of Christ, he is calling us to turn away from lifestyles of sinning and to come to him for repentance and forgiveness. He has taken the penalty for sin on behalf of all who trust in him. He has come to, as the word of God says, comfort all who mourn to grant to those who mourn in Zion 
to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, garments of praise instead of a faint spirit, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And so to all of us who receive Christ as Lord and Savior, we wait upon the Lord for that day of glory. As we conclude, believer in Christ, know that we are no longer those who wait, figuratively speaking, at the beautiful gate, as did that man here in Acts 3. We do not wait to enter into his dwelling place. Rather, Christ has come for us. So will we come and fellowship and dine with him? Will we be those who are healed spiritually and thus enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with loudest praise? And oh, for that day when we will finally join with the entire company of all the believers throughout the ages in Christ and worship him forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have brought us here to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray, O oh God, that as we now come to this time of communion, that you would refresh our souls, um, not only through the preaching of the word, but through now the breaking of bread and the pouring out of the wine. Lord God, as we take these elements, would you remind us that we belong to you? Would you remind us this time is for um, those of us who are believers in you, our Christ, to dine with you, to have fellowship with you, to recognize that we too are those who suffer along with you, our Christ. But we are also those as believers who will be one day glorified, brought out of the sickness and the death that we face and forever healed, physically and spiritually. How we long for that day, Lord. And so, friends, in this moment, I'd like to invite you to go ahead and just privately confess your sins to God, uh, recognizing that he is the one who calls us to come and dine with him. And just contemplate these things here in this moment with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are inviting us to have table fellowship with you as we commune with you by faith. And so we thank you. We pray all this in Christ's holy name. Amen.